Well, it's my uh, absolute pleasure to be with you this morning. This is my first um, speaking engagement uh, since last March. Um, and it's so good to be with you. Now, um, I've known Drew for quite a while, your pastor, um, over 20 years. In fact, and 20 years ago this summer, this was me and Drew out in Ukraine as part of a mission team together. Now, I can only apologize. I don't think Drew or I come off particularly well in this picture, but it's probably as unfair to me as it is to Drew, so that was fair enough. And I could tell you a lot about Drew as a 16-year-old, but his love of the Lord, his concern for people, and his heart of integrity were really clear to see back then, and it's such a joy to see Drew and his family serving your church family today. As a start, I also want to acknowledge that this has been a really tough year um, for so many people. And I know I don't know most of you well at all. I know some of you will have experienced um, profound challenges and life-altering moments in the past 18 months. So I don't for a second want to be flippant. But given the times, it would be really tempting this morning to retreat into only those parts of Scripture that make it on to the inspirational quotes you find on Facebook. And the passage we're looking at today is not one of those portions of Scripture, but at least not entirely. It, it is God's Word, and as always, I want to handle it as carefully and as lightly as possible so that His voice is heard today. Now, here are three words from the passage that I want you to watch out for, which gives some structure uh, to how we might consider what the Lord might be saying to us today. Now, now brace yourselves. Submit, suffer, and die. Submit, suffer, and die. Now, I did warn you, but I also genuinely believe that these words, when understood through Jesus Christ, become transformative for what we face now and for whatever might lie ahead in the future. I was personally challenged and encouraged as I listened back to Leslie's sermon last week. So I won't go into too much background context today. But let's jump back to chapter 1 for a moment, just to remind ourselves how Peter opens his letter. And to give us a bigger context before we narrow into these uh, verses. So 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 7 says this. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. In all this you you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief of all kinds of tri- in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So as we know, Peter is writing to a largely Gentile uh, group of Christians who are suffering, but reminding them of their new identity as those born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This new identity 
should cause them to live in new relationships with God, with each other as believers, and with the world around them, in their families, as citizens, and as ambassadors of God's new kingdom. If we forget the context of this letter, if we miss this call to live in new identities and in new relationships, we can also easily miss what is being said here about submission, about suffering and death to ourselves. But if we can grasp the depth of this new identity and the new relationships we're called into as those who are in Christ, these difficult words of submission, suffering and death can be transformed. In submission, we can find freedom in Christ. In suffering, we can find solidarity with Christ. In death to ourselves, we can find life through Christ. So let's look at submit. Satan verses 13 to 17, uh, and again in, in verse 18 again. And it's in relation to rulers and civic authorities, and in verse 18, uh, in relation to the servants or slaves and masters. It also comes up again in chapter 3, which I'm sure you'll pick up again in the weeks ahead. But today, I think this word has a very negative context. Uh, we take it to be maybe a weak word, like a fighter who's being wrestled into submission. If someone's giving up, they're giving in, they're raising the white flag, because um, the other party is stronger and more powerful than we are, so we have to submit. But I don't think this is what Peter is talking about here in these instances. Yes, there is a power dynamic between citizen and state, between master and slave, which at times is often exploited and abused. However, this is a call to voluntary and intentional submission to a legitimate authority. Crucially, and we see in verse 13 and verse 19, for the Lord's sake, and because they are conscious of God. So a submission for the Lord's sake and because they're conscious of God. So straight away, this is not saying that those in a position of power will, by virtue of holding that position, automatically use that power for good. This is not saying that all authority is good or that we should blindly submit to any authority without thinking or without question. Remember, Peter was writing this in the context of Roman and Greek authorities when being a Christian was a dangerous thing. It was tolerated and allowed to a degree, but persecution was never really that far away, whether from the Roman authorities or from the Jewish leaders. By declaring that Jesus is Lord, you were saying that Caesar is not. This is a dangerous and costly declaration, and it still is today in many ways. Remember when Peter told the high priest in Acts Chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. So this context here is about submitting to bear witness to Christ, being a good citizen, living peaceably with our neighbors, about respecting and honoring authorities as far as possible under the ultimate lordship of Christ. Why? By, by verse 15, by doing good, note, not by arguing, that you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. In some ways, this comes down to authority and responsibility. I think there are words that Leslie used last week as well. God has given some authority to earthly rulers, and we have a responsibility to submit to them. We live in this fallen world, but God is still sovereign. 
through his providence and his accommodation to us, human rulers can bring some order out of chaos. They can punish evil and praise good. Verse 14. But as we see throughout scripture, the judges and the kings do not always rule in accordance with the word of the Lord. Psalm 2 shows this clearly and it's a warning. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. However, Christ is the head of the church, not the queen or the state. And he has given to us something of his authority. And we carry this responsibility into everyday life as stewards, as good governors, as salt and as light. And when it comes to this difficult relationship between Christians and the government, I think there always should be a tension. If there's no tension at all, I'm not sure we've properly understood the role of government or the church correctly. And I think many, many people maybe confuse the separation of church and state with the separation of faith and politics. The first, I would argue, is almost always essential. The second is almost always impossible. So that's the separation of church and state and the separation of faith and politics. Verse 16 says this, Live as free men. Live as servants of God. And note that there's not um, even a hint of contradiction there. But in the same verse, we're told to live as free people and as servants or slaves of God. Now, what, what does it look like to live in freedom today anyway? Well, in our culture, I would suggest living in freedom looks like pushing against any external boundaries or norms. The free person is the one who redefines themselves, who breaks free from expectations and, uh, that are put upon us that they have no responsibilities and they're not under the authority of anyone else. But for the follower of Jesus, freedom looks completely different. Freedom is submission, slavery, and death. It's living in the new identity and relationships that God has gifted to us through Jesus Christ, entering into both his death and his resurrection, being born again into a living hope, as we saw in uh, chapter 1, Becoming the human beings that we were made to be as part of the new humanity, the Church of Christ. So it's just worth knowing that there's very different understandings and definitions of freedom today in our culture and as in the church. And that somehow in submission, as slaves or servants of God, we actually find freedom. Verse 17 says, respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God. And honor the emperor. Short, punchy commands. And different postures within different relationships. And imagine for a moment if your non-Christian neighbors used these words to describe your relationships. That you respected everyone. Even those who were very different to you. Who believed very different things to you and lived in very different ways. You still saw something in them, the God image in them, that caused you to treat them with respect. That you loved other believers. That they saw love embodied, made tangible in this local church community, an otherworldly, selfless way of living with one another that pointed to Jesus. That you feared God. Not fearful or of a vindictive or an abusive God, 
or fearful of abandonment. But in the context of this morning's submission and fear and suffering, I was reminded of Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid, when Jesus says this, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a truly terrifying verse in many ways. But a holy fear of a holy God, a reverence, a devotion, a constant consideration of the Lord that overflows into the lives um, of those around you, full of wisdom and love. And, and that you honour then the emperor, or in our day, the government and, and civic authorities, that you give them proper place, living peaceably, law-abiding lives, as far as your conscience allows you. And within that tension that we talked about, that tension that you, you fear the Lord, as you love your brothers and sisters, and you respect everyone. Moving on through the passage a little more and looking at the word suffer, which again jumps, jumps out. And in Roman households, it would have been expected that servants and slaves followed the gods of the patriarch in the family. And so if you weren't going to declare Christ as Lord, that often led to tensions within the household and unjust or unfair treatment. Slaves and servants, as well as wives and children, were generally treated as the property of the master. Human beings were dehumanized and treated as commodities. And verse 19 says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. And then he says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I wonder if that phrase stand out for you. To this you were called. Called isn't the language we tend to associate with suffering. Have you ever thought about being called to suffer? And when we let those words hang in the air for a second, it gets pretty uncomfortable, doesn't it? Our culture really struggles with suffering. We either want to avoid it completely or end it as quickly as possible. And there's, there's good reasons for this. Suffering comes as a result of the fall, and we don't want to see anyone suffer. It can be dehumanizing, and we rightly want to stop people from suffering, and we want to alleviate their pain and their hardship. That's why we champion relief work, charitable efforts around debt and poverty, medicine and pain relief, and scientific discovery. It's good to want to end suffering. Sometimes, however, this good desire can lead to ends which seek to um, not just to justify ending the suffering, but ending the life of the sufferer like abortion as a solution to economic hardship, or euthanasia as a solution to what is deemed a fatal illness. As for suffering for our faith, I don't buy into a persecution narrative here in Northern Ireland. Open Doors says that currently 340 million Christians are living under persecution and fear of death today. We have amazing freedoms here to share the gospel but there is no doubt that we are experiencing the wings of change. And I regularly now have people getting in contact with me in my role. 
uh, about the challenges of working or schooling or providing medicine in a culture that is increasingly anti-Christian. As a parent of young children, we are trying to work out how we raise our children in the clear but age-appropriate understanding that they are going to face challenges as they grow up if they continue to profess Jesus Christ as Lord. And we want to prepare them for that reality um, as well as assure them of God's presence with them. Suffering for doing good is an act of witness. It echoes the turning the other cheek and the walking the extra mile. Now, I want to be careful here. It's not saying that Christians are to become victims or uh, of abuse or, or doormats. It's not saying that we are to ignore injustice. But the deliberate act of not retaliating or not taking revenge, of not insulting or making threats, but of suffering and injustice for doing good, that strangely and subversively becomes a beautiful act of defiant witness to the one you're entrusting yourself to, to use the language of this passage. Yet, what if suffering was not always a problem to be solved, but an invitation into human solidarity, to be present with those who are suffering, to learn and to grow? following in the footsteps of Christ himself in verse 19 and, and into deeper relationship and solidarity with him. I've been reading a book lately uh, by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. I would definitely commend that to you. It says this, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go into pain and anguish, we are descending ever deeper into Christ's heart, not away from it. So in Christ we have ultimate freedom, yet here and now we may be called to suffer. And in doing so we may be drawn into Christ's very heart with us. The next one, die. Verse 24, die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There's something deeply physical about the words being used here. Dying, living, wounding, healing. They're all physical bodily acts. And don't miss the movement of the text here. The exchanges that take place in this verse say so much about our new identity in Christ. From death to life, he died and rose so that we might die to our sin and live resurrection life with him forever. From sin to righteousness, he bears our sins and gives us his righteousness. And from wounds to healing, he heals us, saves us, redeems us through his very wounds. And again, the idea of death initially sounds harsh. We've seen and heard so much about death this past year. And as human beings, when death happens, though part of the natural cycle of this fallen world, there's often a sense of injustice and loss that things should not be this way. The idea of dying to ourselves in this life is perhaps even more offensive than physical death and more countercultural in an age obsessed with the individual and with self-worship. Again, as with the acts of submission and suffering, Jesus transforms and redeems our understanding of, of death. We do not press into our deepest authentic selves to find out who we really are. Rather, we die to ourselves and live in Christ 
And somehow, in this death to ourselves, we are being remade in his image. Yet, not just a robotic remake in Christ's image, we become the truest versions of ourselves, of who we were really made to be. What am I saying? Dying to ourselves is not an erasure of our identity, but resurrection living into the fullness of who we're really made to be. So we started with three stark words. Submit, suffer, and die. But as we've seen in the presence of Christ, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, we find these paradoxes. In submission, we're invited to find freedom in Christ. In suffering, we're invited to find solidarity with Christ. In death to ourselves, we're invited to find life through Christ. We also uh, started with a proclamation of the new identity that we were born into. um, Born into a living hope. The passage ends with another reminder of who we are through our journey in Christ. You see highlighted there, it says, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. To finally return, verses 24 to 26. Don't forget who's writing this letter. Don't miss the reference to sheep and shepherd. It's Peter who witnessed Jesus' life, his suffering, his submission, his death. And his resurrection. Peter saw this firsthand. Peter who strayed away from the shepherd. And denied knowing Jesus three times. And then Jesus asked him three times. Do you love me? Take care of my sheep. Peter then returned to the shepherd. And Christ charged him to be a shepherd himself. To take care of of his sheep. And here many, many years later. We see Peter writing this pastoral letter where he passes on Jesus' words to these believers, passing on the charge. And I'm sure the memories of Jesus, uh, his words, his images, his charge to him were never far away from Peter's mind as he was writing these words. We've just talked about submission, suffering and death. And though it's not detailed in scripture It's widely accepted from early church records that Peter submitted, suffered, and died as a martyr for his witness uh, to Jesus. From denier to martyr, from straying to walking safely with the shepherd. This is the story of Peter in this passage, and it can be your story too. It's not too late, as it says in the last verse here, to return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul, to the safety and good pasture of Jesus. It's not too late to come for the first time, maybe if you're not returning. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure to open God's word, and I just want to leave those words hanging there for a moment. If, If you don't know Jesus, if what I've been talking about this morning just sounds completely strange, that you would suffer, submit, die to yourself, Um, I encourage you to read through the Gospels to find Jesus in the words of Scripture and to take up his invitation to you. Just hand at this moment back over to Paul and thank you again for the invitation to be with you tonight.